Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. A hallmark of the institution is the caliber of our fellowship. Our renowned scholars have both academic and practical experience. Their work is rigorous, independent, and grounded in history, data, and logic. The dissemination of their work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives, both here and around the world. These briefings are just one of the ways we hope to inform the discussion on the difficult challenges before us. Thank you for joining us today. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions. And I encourage all of you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today, we'll be talking with Chiron Skinner. Chiron is the W. Glenn Campbell Research Fellow and recently returned to Hoover after serving as a Senior Policy Advisor to Secretary Pompeo and the Director of the Office of Planning, Policy Planning in the State Department. Earlier in her career, Chiron served on the Defense Department's Defense Policy Board, Pennsylvania's Statewide Commission on African American Issues, and was a foreign policy surrogate to the Bush-Cheney re-election campaign. Chiron, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, Karen, you're, you're a foreign policy expert. We had originally set up this briefing to discuss foreign policy, and we're still going to do that, but you've also written and spoken extensively and eloquently on the current crisis and race relations in America. Give us your perspective on what you're seeing right now in our country around uh, race relations. It's, um, you know, both a tragic time and an exciting time. Um, all of us, I think, it, what's been amazing and we saw this at not with 9-11, is that we have collectively grieved um, the loss of George Floyd and all of those like him, um, both men and women, African-American and others as well. And so the coming together, I think in the middle of the isolation that COVID-19 has imposed upon us has been really in some ways reassuring um, for family and friends that otherwise may not be um, connecting. And many have risked their life to come together to protest, um, to stand for justice, and um, to generally make a statement about what it means to have a First Amendment, where we're free to assemble almost no matter what happens. Right. So I see that, and that gives me some comfort. As an African American, I've been deeply disturbed um, and saddened um, by the fact that we're on this 400-year journey Mm. Um, to bring our race to full justice in America when in fact we are as American as anyone could possibly be in terms of supporting this nation through all of its wars, through all of its global and internal ups and downs, and contributing and being creative members of a free society. So I'd like to not have to be here for this particular discussion, but here we are. Yeah. And so I just thank you for the opportunity to talk about race and rights, even though this is a foreign policy dialogue, mm -hmm. not only because it's personal to me, but I think it's really personal to all Americans. Yeah. And it's a way in which we're finding people from the NASCAR <clears throat> world, for example, um, right. to the Black Lives Matter movement, making some similar arguments, making some similar decisions around, um, you know, symbols and so on. Mm -hmm. When did we think that was ever possible? Mm -hmm. And so I've been asked the question in recent weeks, is the United States a racist nation? 
And this is my response. Um, I, I firmly believe that it's hard to establish the metrics of what determines if a nation is racist or not. But I do know a lot about human nature. I've been a professor for many decades. And I know that we have racist people mm. in the United States, but in every nation. We have bigoted people and we have discrimination in the workplace. Mm. But that doesn't mean the nation is racist. What I think defines the United States on, um, on race is a set of contradictions which makes us the most interesting, but objectively, the most fully functioning multi-ethnic democracy in the world mm -hmm. is that when we identify racists and bigots, we eventually catch up to them. Mm -hmm. They're often punished. And we, um, and we rewrite new laws. Mm -hmm. I was born in the era of the um, civil rights movement, slightly before the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act which were phenomenal opportunities for Americans who were seeking um, justice. Mm -hmm. And to get there, it took all kinds of Americans working together, mm -hmm. um, not just African-Americans. And so I feel that we're at a moment like that again. We tend to get good in this country when there is a crisis. Mm -hmm. Out of the Civil War, we got the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. And those amendments have become critical for bringing people to fuller citizenship and to fuller justice. But they're also a model for other countries who've moved on the path to democracy of what it means to provide equal protection and due process for people. Mm -hmm. That comes out of our worst crisis. So what we're seeing now is a very interesting, innovative period where people are talking about defunding the police, new laws around law enforcement. Um, we're going to do some good things. We'll make some mistakes, but right. we'll do some really important path-dependent institutional initiatives that I think will help our whole nation. Got it. Chiron, let me ask you specifically about this. You brought up the issue of the NASCAR racing circuit uh, ban the display of the Confederate flag. Uh, Speaker Pelosi this morning called for the uh, uh, for taking down 11 statues in the Capitol, chiefly of Southern men. Uh, and protesters around the country are tearing down statues and monuments in cities, including St. Paul, Boston, Richmond, and others. Uh, obviously, what we're still doing as a nation is trying to come to grips with our, our unfortunate history around slavery. What do you make of this, and what's the appropriate way for us to deal with the sentiments that are causing people to question uh, the symbolic value of these historical uh, markers. Um, you could not have told me a couple of decades ago when I was starting my academic career as a historian and political scientist that there would ever be a day when people from different um, um, sectors of American society would come together to talk about our symbols, um, the Confederate flag, um, uh, and, and statutes that we all went to visit as children um, going to Washington or to various capitals for the first time throughout the country. Mm -hmm. um, so the scholar in me says, I want some of those symbols to be left there because I want to be able to take my students to them and say, this is what happened. Here's this person. Here's what he stood for. Here's what was done. Um, and do you agree in real time having a conversation that this person should be honored, that this person was part of the American journey? 
another part of me that's not just the scholar who wants to take my students there. I'm, I'm the African-American citizen who says, do I really want to see that symbol, that, that, that um, slavery bl um, block where African-Americans stood to be sold as I'm walking to, to Starbucks to have coffee? Mm -hmm. um, and I think figuring that out is really hard. I don't know if it means that we start a national commission on our heritage to figure out what to do. Sometimes those commissions do very little, but split the difference. But I do think we need to think about it. Maybe we need to slow down right now before we tear everything down and figure out what we want to do with these symbols. Do we want to archive them in museums where we can go and see this is who we once were. It's not where we're going now. Um, do we want to just burn them completely so that they're out of our um, physical memory? Right. There are a lot of ways to think about this. And I don't think that there's one answer, but I do think what we're seeing is a collective national concern mm -hmm. about race and the condition of African-Americans. And it's not just because I'm black, but perhaps I, I lose some credibility in saying this because mm -hmm. I am black, but the problem of blacks in America is our enduring problem mm -hmm. because of our pathway to this country. We did not come as, as immigrants. We are an amazing nation of immigrants. We came against our will. Not that I want to blame slavery for everything that goes wrong being a black person, but that's a powerful way to one, depopulate a continent, taking the young and strong, um, as was taken from the African continent, which I think has never recovered. And mm -hmm. I have colleagues who work on, on, on those issues at Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. um, where I teach, but also for who we are as a nation. In our constitution at one point, we were three-fourths of a person. That's a powerful statement to make to human beings, sure. that you're barely a person, mm -hmm. but really your property. Yeah. And I think we're still coming out of that, um, and it's really painful because I think it means that we lost financial opportunities over the many, many decades we, on centuries, we lost educational opportunities just because of who we are, because our skin is different. And sometimes I think about that, and it sounds really naive, but just because my skin is different, I have to be different. But apparently that is where, what we're still grappling with in America. Yeah. Kyron, um, the, the protest um, that, that occurred in the wake of the murder of George <clears throat> Floyd we're focused chiefly on uh, police, the need for police reforms, be behavioral reforms. This has kind of morphed into a more general issue uh, with the phrase defunding the police, which has us looking more closely at the financing of police activities and uh, the way in which that financing can be, can be used to incentivize reforms. Tell us a little bit about what the defund the police movement is about. What are the specific proposals that you've heard that are included in that uh, policy agenda? So I think the defund um, the police movement is a broad tent now and maybe getting broader to capture a lot of things. Some of it is just capturing anger and resentment and frustration and people not knowing what specifically they should do. It has become a catch-all phrase for some. We think the police are the problem with race in America. I think there's a broader problem with race in America than, than the police, but the police, some police have been a problem. Um, part of the movement calls for literally defunding the police. 
um, some within this, this um, broad movement are calling for defunding parts of what the police do. Some are saying, let's look at the kinds of, 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 of weapons that they have and are they necessary? Others are calling for um, laws and rules and regulations around a databases of those with disciplinary action that's been documented. Mm -hmm. um, many of these are worth looking at. Mm -hmm. um, think about it. The NYPD has a budget, I think of about $6 billion, right. LAPD upwards of $2 billion. Um, these are big budgets. What are they doing with the money? And I think what came out of George Floyd is that people start asking questions about the, the money. Where's the money going? What's happening with these training programs on sensitivity and racial diversity? Do they work? Um, bias busters, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And I, so I think there's something in the movement that we need to take seriously. Again, America gets good during times of crisis. It comes up with ideas. Not all of them will meet, I think, the test of reason and research, yeah. but some will. Got it. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's Virtual Policy Briefing with Chiron Skinner. Chiron, uh, our political leaders play important roles in divisive times like this. In your assessment, is the president striking the right tone? If you were advising him on how to counsel the nation or lead the nation now, what would your recommendations be to him? Oh, Tom, I wish I could be in the White House right now doing exactly what you just proposed. Um, and I think it would be perhaps the most important work that I could do in my life. And I really mean that honestly. Um, I think what the president needs to do, instead of reacting to some of the statements that we're hearing, is, be, is get ahead of all of this. The Americans need a fireside chat from the president on race in America. I don't think it's unrealistic that President Donald Trump could be the race president in the United States. Because there's a foundation on what he's done that hasn't always been reported on, I think, at the, at the level that, of the impact it's had around um, prison reform, criminal justice reform, around supporting historically black colleges and universities. I'm a Spelman graduate, so that was something that's personally significant to me. Um, but also um, changing the unemployment and employment dynamics for many people of color, especially Blacks and Hispanics um, in this country. There's a foundation that's, that needs to be built upon. Mm -hmm. And I think POTUS is the one to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think he needs to sit down to, with Americans, have a fireside chat, use the podium that he has that no other elected official has and talk to us about the process of bringing our nation together mm -hmm. and bringing black people into to full power in America. Mm -hmm. That would be my advice. Got it. Listen, uh, listen, among uh, other things. Yeah, among other things. Let, uh, I'm gonna ask even harder questions, Karan, uh, uh, now that I got you here. Suppose, um, you know, legislate, the US Congress is gonna respond in one way or another, we hope to the George Floyd killings. Uh, if you were in Congress, what kind of bill would you pass? What should it include? What kind of legislative solutions seem obvious to us right now that we should adopt? You know, I think this one about, um, which seems obvious and can be done at the state and local level about 
police who have disciplinary problems that they be that they be looked at that there's a database there's a place to know who they are so they don't move to the next county and continue their bad behavior but you know i don't know if i were legislate legislator if i were a member of congress if i try to pass any bill right now i think i would go first on a major listening tour um and understand what we need to do in the inner cities this isn't all about just police it's a broader problem um, of what's happening in the urban areas and if we're going to use this as a big moment to do something institutional yes let's think about the police but let's think about what else we can do and so um, i think i'd be listening to more americans and i do the kind of historical archaeology um, that I think really requires us to get better laws. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's where I would go. This is um, super hard too, because we're in a presidential election year and so much of the attention is being pushed into the direction of trying to get one or the other candidate in, in office. And sometimes I think in the middle of an, an election year, it's hard to do your best work legislatively yeah. or policy-wise because right. There's something bigger um, for um, in, in terms of electoral politics um, hanging over you every day. Got it. So if, what, what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that it's not just a policing problem. It may be a problem with educational opportunities. It may be a problem of cultural or social institutions that support uh, Black achievement in America. It's, it's a broader landscape that we need to look closer at. Absolutely, and we've done this you know, before, and that's, that's what concerns me about all this now, this kind of social engineering that people are attempting to to to, to do um per, perhaps through laws is that we've done this in the past i want to know why some of these initiatives didn't work better yeah um i i do know that the new deal um saved millions of lives mm -hmm. um and i know that the great society was important as well but we've had a war on poverty We've had, you know, we, I don't know if we've ever had a war on racism. Maybe we do. But let's look at some of these, a war on drugs. What's worked and what hasn't worked? And that's just my scholarly lens. Yeah. That's where I begin. That's why I'm not in Congress. Right. Um, um, they put me in a room and close the door and say, you're going to study for 10 weeks and we'll write a bill. But Got I really it. think we need, before we go forward, we need to go back. Got it. You know, uh, Chiron, you're, you're a political scientist, so you know well that... Um, kind of a key to political change is political participation. Uh, David asked the following interesting question. He says, Professor Skinner, can you comment on the prospects for African-American voting turnout in November, especially in cities and key battleground states like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, and Detroit? African-American uh, turnout is not always what it should be. Do you think the current events will affect that in a positive way? I hope not, and that's a great question, and I'm worried about it. You know, President Barack Obama brought African-American voters out like we've never seen. Mm -hmm. I mean, and he, he the, the mobilization and the enthusiasm for both of his elections um, was um, really phenomenal, and I would hope would be a um, harbinger of what will come, but I'm just, I think what's happened in the cities, and this is one of the reasons I've been so concerned about what's happening in American cities, you know, we don't want to burn them down. Um, we don't want to, um, you know, do things that will make it less likely that people can get to a polling station. COVID-19 has already done some of that. Yeah. 
in my suburban neighborhood in Pittsburgh, my um, very um, cozy voting um, station has been closed because mm -hmm. seniors live nearby. Yeah. Um, and so it's going to be, you know, another place that will be perhaps more difficult to get to. Yeah. Um, and think of what it is, what's going on in urban cities. You know, the reports that came out this week is that 70 testing, COVID-19 testing sites were destroyed um, through these protests. Uh -huh. And um, what does that mean about voting stations? Yeah. What does it mean about the intersection of COVID-19 with the election, with race, with what's mm -hmm. going on in the cities? Will it mean less voting? Some yeah. have said, well, let's have mail-in ballot. Yeah. Well, for many who are moving from place to place and now have been displaced, mm -hmm. you know, what's the address? Where do they pick up their ballot? Yeah. So there are just a lot of things that I worry that have happened in the first half of 2020 that could affect um, the voting of African-Americans and others in urban areas. It Got is it. a major concern. Got it. You're listening to Hoover Research Fellow Chiron Skinner. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at our website, hoover.org. Chiron, can we turn to foreign policy now? Um, let's do it. All right. Uh, I want to talk to you, make sense of President Trump's approach towards American foreign policy. Is there something called the Trump Doctrine? And if there is, what are its major tenets? Um, the way I tend to answer that question is to go back and say, what existed before the, the, the Trump phenomenon on foreign policy? And when you think about it, for the better part of 70 years, the United States has um, had a set of foreign policy precepts that were largely um, consensus-oriented um, and bipartisan. Mm -hmm. uh, we were in a consensus shortly after World War II that we were in a Cold War. Um, and the fact that we could even come up with a term spoke to the fact that there was a general body of foreign policy um, community members and others throughout the nation who believed that we had a challenger nation that we needed to be concerned about. And we had this um, amazing world position of holding, you know, a lion's share of global GDP, um, nuclear weapons, the first to get there, a successful military, um, an ecosystem that we created after World War II among the university, um, the federal government, DOD, an important role, later DARPA, mm -hmm. um, and um, the private sector. That gave us Silicon Valley, that was an engine for our economy, that made us a technology force in the world, that gave us the modern American university. We're in a different world now. And um, the work that we did in that very creative period, post-war period, needs to be updated for the geopolitical realities. We have new challengers, and we have a whole set of nations in the global south that by 2050 will be key players in the world. Mm -hmm. We're still something like a, the predominant power on earth as an economic and military power but it is a different world. We have China for the first time we are facing in China, a challenger that is really a comprehensive challenger for the US. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union, as you know, <coughs> studied Russia and the Cold War in your own work, um, was a 
a military competitor. It had a huge red army and nuclear weapons, but it had a backwards economy. Mm -hmm. And it had a walled off economic system. We're interdependent with the Chinese. They're simultaneously an economic, military, and a strategic competitor, and a cultural competitor, an alternative to the American Western model. I think that's hard for American policy planners and leaders. We haven't had to think more comprehensively like that. Yeah, so let me interrupt you there, Karan. So, for example, what you read in the press recently that people are predicting an emerging Cold War between China and the U.S., but that, with, with, with the implications for containment and isolation, is really not possible given the integration of China into the global economy, the way it was in the Soviet Union. I agree. I don't think the cold, a Cold War is the right metaphor for what we're, we're seeing with China. I think we need a new mindset. And I think that's still the, the, not the right mindset. Um, right now, we have a China trade policy. Um, mm-hmm. And Trump, um, Donald Trump campaigned on IP theft and trade imbalances. And these were things he wanted to fix. And he's been on that path, and we got the phase one trade deal with China, um, and you know we're um, and we're supposed to do more comprehensive work on China. But trade is a symptom of the China problem. Mm-hmm. I think it is this broader. How do we think more comprehensively about a country that is important to the world we didn't expect necessarily? Mm-hmm. Its first overseas base is in Djibouti, um, North Africa, in the Horn of Africa. Um, and it has a growing presence on the continent. Um, BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, allows it to be, um, build infrastructure projects and cut deals with in parts of the world we didn't expect for this 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 huge China, you know, um, kind of Silk Road. Um, and you know, it's menacing in dominance in the South China Sea. Um, just you know, its its role in the Middle East. The, yeah. due to the fact that it is the lead importer of Middle East oil, uh, which is leading to a whole new set of dynamics in the region as right. the U.S. is more energy independent. Um, so I think that the Trump doctrine is an attempt to address these. Mm-hmm. Here are some of the pillars of the Trump doctrine. Okay. One, we need more burden sharing. For the reasons that I've just talked about, that we're not in 1950, 1960 America. We have allies and partners who are critical for this, for our survival, for their survival, for the future of the West, but we need them to carry more water. That's the argument around NATO. And quite interesting, interestingly, NATO's put hundreds of millions more into mutual defense since Donald Trump be, assumed um, office. Mm-hmm. And the NATO Secretary General um, often speaks highly of what Donald Trump has done. Mm-hmm. Another pillar is that um, we need more reciprocity, greater reciprocity in trade deals and in any international agreement. Mm-hmm. Another pillar is a bit of suspicion around lots of multilateral agreements, more interest in like bilateral free trade agreements. Yeah partly due to the fact that you can see what's going on in those deals when there are fewer players, using them as a, a basis for moving out. Another pillar is the, um, 
organizing, accepting that the nation state is the core unit of analysis in the international system. Right. As important as multilateral forums are and multilateral agreements and institutions are, they can't do the work that the nation state can do. Um, the nation state is responsible for the safety, security, and prosperity of people. No international organization has ever been able to pull all of that off. Not that nation states do it equally well, yeah. um, but that unit is the level um, at which the conversation um, should begin about the international system. It is the organizing principle. These are elements of the Trump doctrine. Right. For many foreign policy elites, they're very upsetting principles. Right. And I think partly because we needed someone to come along, whether the president is right in detail, to talk about how we set up strategic ideas and doctrines that comport to the reality of where the world is and going. Yeah, Kyron, let me, let me uh, level one criticism of the Trump doctrine that's shared by some of our colleagues at the Hoover Institution. And that is that the Trump doctrine adds up to a policy that is a bit of a retrenchment or backing away of the historical leadership role that America has played on the world stage. Some have even referred to it as a neo-isolationist tent. What, how would you respond to that criticism of the Trump? I, I understand that criticism and I had to face it at the State Department representing the US around the world um, last year. And, um, but I think it's a false binary opposite. It is not that we retrench or we stay engaged. And I don't even think it's somewhere in between. I think it's that we stay engaged, but on different terms. I've never heard in President Trump's speeches, right. and let's give you go back to his UN addresses, where I think he gives his best, you know, foreign policy arguments, um, mm -hmm. the three that he's done so far. I've never heard him saying that we're retrenching from the world, mm -hmm. but we want a credible look at where we are and why we're there. Yeah. I always think it's good to do an audit. And this is, I think what he's talking about is a huge foreign policy audit. Well, why have we been in the, in the Middle East and seeing kinetic activity for the better part of 20 years in multiple countries mm -hmm. um, with even more that could, you know, come on board if we just flipped a switch? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have special operations forces all over the world. We have, you know, a, a, our, we, we are carrying, um, we're providing extended um, nuclear and conventional deterrence for most of our allies. Um, and so I think that the president's saying, how do we right size the U.S. footprint in the world? Um, not that we abandon the world. And this is not much different um, in, in the main from the Obama doctrine, often called the light footprint doctrine. Mm. Of, you know, he pulled out of Iraq because it was a campaign promise, even though he had to go back because of ISIS. Yeah. of just having a different footprint in the 21st century and dealing with challenges that aren't necessarily Middle East conflicts. Yeah. Um, so I think that I, the criticism, I understand it at a more rhetorical level, but I don't think it's the real substance of what President Trump is attempting to say. Yeah, well, let me ask you that question. You, 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 you identify the pillar, pillars of the Trump doctrine, but let me even drive it up to a higher level. What do you think President Trump is trying to accomplish with his foreign policy strategy? I think he's trying to figure out a way to have the United States remain a, the predominant power in the international system mm. without carrying the burden of what it did um, many decades ago. 
I see. And I think he he firmly believes that the U.S. Um, is the nation on earth that um, can provide a better guide, um, a set of um, values and, um, and, and norms and institutional structures that will keep the world going in the direction of freedom. Yeah. So I think it really is about helping the U.S. stay as a predominant power on earth. Mm-hmm. And in other, and another way of putting it um, is helping buy a generation or two of freedom for the United States in a very complicated and dangerous world that's seeing more authoritarianism rise, not less. Got it. Let's talk about some specific uh, strategic competitors. Let's talk about China, which I think you would agree is the most significant strategic competitor for the United States for the foreseeable future. Are our policies of diplomatic relations and strategic competition what they ought to be with respect to China? Um, it's that's a hard one. I think having a, a well worked out China strategy is to be to um, to be determined. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the State Department is working very hard at trying to develop a China strategy. But again, I think with the contest of ideas about what world we're actually in and what the strategies should be, that's not, it won't be as easy um, to come, come about as we might hope, even with the empirical evidence of China in the South, South China Sea, of its presence on the African continent, yeah. of you know, all the things that it's doing in the world. Um, but I do think that we are moving in that direction to counter China in ways that we haven't so much before. For example, we're not going to develop a new NATO um, with you know a big office building and a structure and you know all the the money that goes into having that kind of community. But we are setting up a set of new partnerships that are that kind of surge together on particular problems at particular times, like the idea of the Quad in South Asia um, with India, Japan, the U.S. Australia um, to counter activities um, that the Chinese are doing in in the Indo-Pacific, better relations with Vietnam. Um, There are a lot of new ways that I think are interesting that we're countering China. And I, you know, I've been saying for a long time that what the U.S. really needs, um, it's not so much as a maximum pressure campaign on any nation, Mm -hmm. but a maximum diplomacy campaign. And if you really peel away some of what's being done in this administration, there's more diplomatic activity around these regional partnerships and a lot than than I think is commonly understood. Mm-hmm. Um, it just needs to be kind of really elevated as a central part of what we do. That's the best um, counter to China. We're not going to be able to counter China dollar for dollar, bullet for bullet. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be outsmarting any potential adversary with our diplomatic acumen of which we have a lot of history to pull from. Got it. Same question with respect to Russia. Um, that's a hard one, as you know, for this administration because of Russiagate and, and all that's happened and the collusion that didn't really exist. Um, but I would say in some ways the same for Russia. Um, I don't think Russia has the capacity or the ambition that, um, that China has. But we have to watch what um, it has has already done in in Central Europe, 
Mm -hmm. um, and um, the Central Europeans really need our support um, as that we're really in it for them as the bulwark against um, Russian expansionism. Mm -hmm. We have to be concerned about Russia's return to the Middle East through Syria. You know, it was kicked out during the Cold War, but it is back. Um, and, you know, it competes some on the, the African continent as well. I think in terms of um, great power competition, um, this is a new day because um, we have, for example, since I mentioned the African continent, um, countries that once um, sided with us versus the Soviet Union. Now they want something from China and BRI. They want something from Russia. They want something from, from us. They're not willing to go in an ideological direction with one country. Mm -hmm. That means to me that we have to make our value proposition a lot more, a lot better, uh, um, a lot faster. And that's why I say diplomacy matters more. And that's how we're going to combat, combat um, some of the influences of Russia and China. Yeah. Uh, last question on a specific area. Iran, is the maximum pressure uh, campaign that the Trump administration has embarked on been a successful policy with respect to Iran? I think it's hard to know what the metrics of success are. Um, sanctions, um, they, they do work. They impose pain, um, if that's the goal. Sometimes targeted sanctions go, go, you know, they do affect that particular target, that individual or that entity. Mm -hmm. But over time, individuals and entities find ways to end run sanctions. Sanctions are not a policy. Mm -hmm. um, what always worries me is when I see in the US, we're sanctioning, sanctioning, sanctioning. Then I wanna know what's the strategy behind the sanction? What's mm -hmm. the policy, um, you know, the, the goal? If the goal has been to isolate Iran, which is already isolated in the international system, perhaps some of that has, has happened, but it hasn't stopped Iran from being really the fulcrum around a lot of the terrorism in the Middle East and the broader world. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, if we're going to sanction in Iran, we've got to also think about the implications for what it means for Iraq, its neighbor, where we have vested interests in, de in the final defeat of ISIS um, and terrorists um, and militias that are supported and backed by the Iranians. So I think it's a broader, um, a broader issue than mm -hmm. just the maximum pressure campaign. Um, but I can't say that that campaign has failed. I need to know what metrics we're trying to use. Mm -hmm. um, it has been a, a lot of dedicated work in this administration to, to do what it has done on the Iran portfolio. Yeah, got it. Kairan, I want to end with a question which tries to uh, tie the two topics we've talked about today. Uh, a lot of our foreign competitors have used the recent civil unrest and the basic injustices that were demonstrated <coughs> in the George Floyd case has arguments that America doesn't have the moral authority to assume any kind of leadership role whatsoever in the world. Uh, does domestic, the kind of domestic strife and turmoil and injustice we've seen in the United States recently, does it undermine our ability to be a world uh, leader on the global stage? I don't see that argument um, because I think that the United States is clearly the world's most fully functioning multi-ethnic democracy. What you see on the streets in the United States with the protest are protected by the First Amendment. Um, and um, we understand what our rights are. Americans understand their rights and they're acting upon those rights. The fact that we tear our hair out 
around race and rights in America, to me suggests that we are a beacon for many. We, we can't hide it for very long. You go to other parts of the world, as I have, and people say, we don't have a race problem. And I've heard that many in many countries in the world. Um, we don't have a race problem. I think when you have NASCAR and Black Lives Matter coming to some similar conclusions about, about you know, symbols and images, mm -hmm. I think it really means that we're talking to each other. It's pretty painful because it is painful. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we talk about and argue and we come to a better place. Mm -hmm. um, and the legislation that we have passed in the last half century or more around race and rights and equality um, for all people mm -hmm. is, is really the, 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 the North Star for other nations that want to do the same. They study what we do. Mm -hmm. Many of the constitutions that were written at the end of the Cold War, as the revolution spread, both in you know South Africa and Eastern Europe, Latin America, were modeled after our own. So the fact that we continue to try to figure out the problem of African Americans who came here as enslaved people um, 400 years later, I don't think it means we don't have moral authority. I think this is what it looks like when you're dealing with perhaps the hardest problem in the human condition. How do you bring people to full power? Got it. Karan, thank you for the discussion today. It was wonderful. I really appreciate your insights on all these issues. Thank you for the opportunity. Great. I want to remind everybody that our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Tuesday, June 16th at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time with senior fellow and healthcare scholar, Kate Bundorf, who will be discussing COVID-19 and the U.S. healthcare system. You can join Tuesday's briefing at the same link that you signed in on today. And you will find Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, thank you for joining us today, and please have a wonderful weekend. Goodbye.